Well, in 1882, uh, German atheist and philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, summarized his thinking with this quote, God is dead and we have killed him. The 1800s, uh, if you know, was a time that's referred to as the Enlightenment. It was the time of the Industrial Revolution. Science and technological advances were being made at the time. And amidst this part of history, uh, where secularism and science became central parts of our society, and Nietzsche and others spread this thinking that this sort of society that we were becoming, this modern and enlightened era, can no longer turn to Christianity to find meaning and purpose. And instead of looking to God, to look at things in our world, philosophy, art, music, theatre, culture, to find meaning and purpose. Uh, this was one of the big influences in the sexual revolution that we're still feeling the effects of today. Uh, Nietzsche is one of the founding fathers of, of the society that we live and breathe in today, our postmodern, our godless, our horizontal, worldly, finding meaning and purpose in the pleasures of this world, only world, a world that says, God is dead, and we've killed him. Well, as we come to the end of Ecclesiastes today, uh, Nietzsche's quote is actually what the author in this book has been painting. Uh, we've seen over the past few weeks the author or the preacher of Ecclesiastes investigating what he calls life under the sun, life in this world, life in a world with no reference to God. And we've seen this again and again. The preacher's verdict is this, vanity, vapor or mist or smoke, here and gone, meaningless. You see, life in this world, life without God, there's no meaning in it. There's no purpose in it. There's no lasting satisfaction or fulfillment in it. And if there is anything, it's fleeting. It's here and gone it doesn't last. Well, we've gone through the last few chapters just a bit faster uh, because the book uh, repeats a few themes again and again, and uh, the author continues in his words of wisdom. Uh, we've summarized the major themes over the past term so far. Uh, wisdom under the sun, time under the sun, work, wealth, justice, and finally death under the sun. And today we come to the conclusion, the end of the book, which includes a last challenge or encouragement to the reader. But before we jump into this passage, there's one issue that we do need to be aware of that overshadows the conclusion and the whole book. Uh, if you remember in the beginning of the series, we mentioned that Solomon, uh, King Solomon is most likely the author. He's the preacher, the teacher, or the gatherer. Uh, remember chapter 1, verse 1, right in the beginning, it says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. But the issue of authorship is a bit more complicated than this. And it rears its head again as we read the end of Ecclesiastes. Because as we come to today's passage, verse 9, if you go from verse 8 to 9, it signals a change 
In style, it moves from first person to third person. The first word in verse 9, besides, it's a Hebrew word that signals a conclusion, an ending, an epilogue, or even an appendix. And the scene scene seems to change too, from the gathering uh, to a father giving final words to his son in verse 12. And here are some of the different thoughts about this going around today. Uh, First, in this last section, it's still Solomon. Uh, He looks back on the message that he gave, and he's giving his final reflections to his son. The second option is uh, the preacher and all the writing up to chapter 12, verse 8, is Solomon. Uh, But the person who writes the end, verse 9 to 14, is actually another person, a, a later editor or what they call a frame narrator. Uh, There's some other ideas, but these are the two main ones. Uh, But either way, with these two views, it doesn't change too much how we understand uh, the end of Ecclesiastes. But it's something to be aware of as we work through the end of this book today. Well, let's have a look at the passage beginning in chapter 12, verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. As we mentioned before, the word besides, it signals the end, a conclusion, an epilogue, bring this work of writing to a close. In today's passage, we actually find this word twice in the Hebrew, once in verse 9, And again, in verse 12, it's a bit hidden in the English in the word beware. So we find two conclusions, a PS and a PPS, Appendix 1, Appendix 2, both of these reflecting on Solomon's writing from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 12, verse 8. And the first conclusion, we see the author giving background to the preacher's work. We've just finished Solomon's wisdom talk And now the author, whether it's Solomon himself or someone else, wants to commend the preacher the best he can. And he does this in three ways. First is commending the preacher's general work. He's wise. He worked in teaching people knowledge, weighing, putting wise words on a scale, evaluating their truthfulness, studying understanding the meaning of these wise words and arranging many proverbs in great care, ordering them in the right collections and the right themes so it makes sense. In other words, he's saying here, you can trust the preacher. His whole life is dedicated to understanding and teaching wisdom. The second way the author commends the preacher is through his work in Ecclesiastes. He used words of truth, correct interpretations, and sound wisdom, but he's also presented it with style, pleasure, delight, elegance, high aesthetic quality. That's what words of delight means, and that's what we've seen all through Ecclesiastes. It's blunt, yes. It's a bit depressive, yes, and it is accurate in its realism, But Solomon has written it, he's crafted it creatively, elegantly, in a way that is attractive to the hearers and the readers. 
And the third way the author commends the preacher's work is in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. In this verse, we have two similes and a metaphor, if you go back to English class, describing the words of the wise, including the preacher. And these three comments show us the intention of the preacher's work in Ecclesiastes. How does this work, how does Ecclesiastes affect the listener and us? Well, three things are here in these comments. First, the words of the wise are like goads. A a goad is a pole uh, with sharp nails on them, and they're used by farmers in ancient times to keep animals on the straight and narrow path. And wise words in Ecclesiastes is meant to do this too, to give us direction, to keep us on the right path. Second, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Shepherds in the time, they used nails firmly fixed on the ground to keep their tent stable, kind of like tent pegs. And the words of Ecclesiastes are like firm nails. They offer stability if you follow these wise words. And third and finally, they're given by one shepherd. It's a strange wording. Uh, There's two other times in the Old Testament that the word shepherd is used as a metaphor. Uh, They're both in in Ezekiel, and they both look forward to uh, the promised Messiah figure, the son of David, the son of God, whom we know as Jesus Christ, the one who proclaims himself as the good shepherd. And this way of reading verse 11 has influenced our English Bibles. You can see it's capitalized the S in shepherd. And these wise sayings he's saying here are not just the preacher's wise words. They're actually from Jesus. They're given by God. They're part of God's word, the Bible, and we ought to hear them in this way. It's a messianic prophecy in some way. And just as the author finishes by commending Solomon's work, as we finish our time in Ecclesiastes today, God commands this whole writing to us. You see, not only is Solomon wise, and his work in Ecclesiastes is truthful and elegant, you see, this writing is part of God's word to give us direction, to give us stability, as we live in this world today, knowing that these words, these wisdoms, is ultimately from God himself. So knowing that this is the preacher's word, and this is how this writing ought to affect us, we're going to pause for a moment between our first section, verse 9 to 11, and the second section, verse 11 to 14, and we're going to quickly recap Solomon and recap his investigations through his work of Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bibles, you can follow as we skim through from chapter 1. If you have a look, that poetic introduction, everything is vanity, it's a breath, it's a mist, vapor, here and gone. It's meaningless. What does man gain by all his work under the sun? 
As we keep going, Solomon launches into his investigation. Wisdom, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. All is vanity and striving after the wind. Work, chapter 2, verse 23. All his days are full of sorry, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Chapter 3 moves to time, a time for everything. But then he says, what, but what gain does the worker have from all this? And the applied answer is nothing. Time is our master. Pleasures and money... Chapters 4 to 6, this also is vanity and an unhappy business, a striving after the wind. Skip a bit forward to chapter 8, justice. He says there is a vanity again that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And chapter 9, death, there is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event, death, happens to all. You see, Solomon, he investigates life under the sun, that Nietzsche view on life, if God doesn't exist and this is all there is. And again and again, his verdict is the same. Vanity, transient, here and gone. Life under the sun isn't going to last. Life in this world only just simply doesn't satisfy. It's a dead end. It won't give purpose. It won't give meaning or satisfaction. Vanity. That word we heard repeated again and again. It appears 38 times in these 12 chapters. It's what starts this wisdom talk in verse 1 and 2 and ends the talk in chapter 12, verse 8. Life under the sun in this world only, a life without God. It's vanity, isn't it? It's fleeting. Here and gone. It's not going to last. Look at Queen Elizabeth II, 96 years old, reigned as a queen for 70 years, the longest of any British monarch, a well-loved queen by many. But even for her, life under the sun in this world is vanity. It's fleeting. It's here and gone. And if you study her faith, she knew this all too well. So therefore, to find meaning, satisfaction, and purpose in the things of life under the sun, whether it be knowledge, power, pleasures, or money, it's all a dead end. Nothing in this world satisfies. Nothing lasts. Nothing gives ultimate meaning. You see, that's what Solomon finds in his investigation of life under the sun. And with this in mind, in our background, we come to the conclusion, the final conclusion, the PPS, and it has two parts. The first part is in verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. 
whether it's an old Solomon saying this to his son or a later editor summarizing his work for his son, the first part is a command to beware. Beware of any wisdom beyond this. I think he's saying God through Solomon has covered it so well here. So beware of getting caught in that endless cycle of study. Don't get caught up chasing wisdom that takes hold of your entire life. And God's word here isn't saying, don't think, don't study, don't analyze. God has given us his word to know God, to study God, to learn about God's greatness and goodness in Jesus. But it is saying, don't go beyond God's wisdom. Don't think so much that it becomes an endless cycle of knowledge and chasing rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole. And this brings us to the second part, the finale, the point that the author really wants to drive home. We see this in how it's introduced in verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. This is it. It's the last word. We've seen Solomon's investigation. We've looked hard with Solomon at life under the sun. We've seen his verdict after verdict after verdict. And here at the end of his search, this is what we're invited to do. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. Remember Solomon, uh, he was the king, he was wealthy, he had all the worldly pleasures at his fingertips, he had power, he really had it all. He's experienced life under the sun to the full, he's investigated, he's weighed it. And Solomon's conclusion, or the editor's conclusion, is that the best way to live is to fear God and to keep his commands. And we should have seen this coming, going through all of this writing. This is what Solomon's been alluding to through his whole book. Chapter 3, verse 14, God has done it so that people fear before him. Chapter 5, verse 7, God is the one you must fear. Chapter 7, verse 18, fearing God. Chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, it will be well for those who fear God. You see, if life under the sun is vanity, if it's here and gone, if it's meaningless, then we need to look somewhere else. We need to look above the sun, looking to God and living that way. And this looks like fear and obedience. Fearing God, uh, we use the word fear in a different way in our world today, but it means submission to respect for, dependence on, in worship to. In other words, acknowledging that there is a God who rules and reigns, making much of this God and aligning our lives around him. And this leads to obeying God, following his ways, living out his words and his commands and his demands on us. And it's only by doing this fearing God and keeping his commands, that we find the opposite of vanity. We find lasting and ultimate meaning, purpose, 
and satisfaction. You see, life only makes sense when it's centred around our good and gracious God who's sovereign over all. And this is exactly where the author goes next. For this is the whole duty of man. You see, to fear God and obey his commands, it's our duty. It's what we're made for. It's what makes us whole. It's what gives us purpose. It's where we find fulfillment as humans created by God. And if that isn't enough to urge the reader to fear God and obey his commands, the author goes on and he gives us a final motivation. Verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We saw just then a positive motivation to fear and obey. It's our duty. It's what we're created for. And now we see a negative motivation with a purpose to shake the reader out of apathy. Judgment is coming. God sees everything. God knows everything. He knows whether you've lived fearing God and keeping his commands or whether you've lived that life of vanity. And the implication as the author, whether Solomon or an editor, finishes this, it's a challenge to both the believer, the God-fearer, and the unbeliever. Fear God and keep his commands today. Don't live for the temporal things of the world like power, wealth, pleasures, or wisdom. Acknowledge and live for God. This is the way to live a full, meaningful and satisfying life. Well, as we finish our series in Ecclesiastes, the note we end on here is fear and obedience. And as we think about the world around us today, it's not surprising that this combination of commands doesn't rub well with our ears and the world's ears. You see, we want freedom, not fear. We want independence, not obedience. But when we realize that it's God's universe, not ours, that's his universe, that he's in control, that he's the one who lovingly created us and gave us purpose in the world, that he's the one who's powerfully saved us in Jesus and given us life. When we realize these things, we see that fearing God and obeying him it makes total and complete sense that, is, that it is indeed the way to find true meaning in this world. Or well, fear and obedience is not just an exclusive Ecclesiastes thing. It's actually God's call to his people all through Scripture. Fear and obedience. In Deuteronomy, if you think back, it's a pivotal moment where God saved the people graciously and mercifully out of Egypt and declares how his people are to live for God. And what we find in Deuteronomy is fear and obedience. Deuteronomy 6 verse 1 and 2. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I command you 
all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Chapter 8, verse 6 repeats this again. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. You see it all through Deuteronomy, actually. You see, living God's way, living in response to his gracious and saving work has always included fear and obedience, worshipping God as God, loving him, fearing him, standing in awe of him, making God God. And as a result of this, living his ways and obeying his commands. You see, Ecclesiastes just picks up on the same theme, fear God and obey his commands. And even as we think about the New Testament, while the word fear isn't used a lot, the idea of fearing God, worshipping him with your all, loving him, appears with a command to obey. Jesus reiterates this in his teaching on the great command, Matthew 22, verse 37. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, by quoting the Shema, Jesus is saying, Do that Deuteronomy thing fear and obedience and it looks like this loving god and loving others as yourself and while deuteronomy back in the old testament is written in light of god's grace to his people by saving them from slavery from egypt jesus says this in the new testament in light of a greater work of salvation god's grace in jesus dying on the cross in our place saving us from the penalty of sin and death and granting us new life forever, a greater, the ultimate exodus. And Jesus says, that fear and obedience thing, that's still how God wants us to live. And this is repeated again in the teaching of the early church in the letters of John. John, he repeats again and again the call to love God And 1 John 5 verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. You see, people who belong to God, who follow Jesus as Lord and Saviour, it's all still about fear and obedience. Loving God and keeping his commands. Well, what does all of this mean for us today? Well, as humans, we're driven with the search for meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and satisfaction. We often look for it, it, don't we, in things that are under the sun, just like what Solomon illustrates in Ecclesiastes. We endlessly look for it in things like work, wealth, knowledge, and pleasure. But God wants us to see that nothing under the sun will truly satisfy, that only a life of fear and obedience before our creator God, in light of his grace shown to us in Jesus, only a life lived in this way can truly satisfy. It's our duty, it's our calling as people made by God and for God. 
So let me ask you as we finish our time today and our series in Ecclesiastes, are you living in fear and obedience to God today? Are you living in fear and obedience to God today? Maybe you've been living for worldly things. Maybe you've been searching for meaning and finding dead ends. Maybe you've been momentarily seduced by the lights of the world. Well, God wants you to fear him and obey his word, to love him and to live his ways, to surrender to him and to serve his purposes, to make much of him and humble yourself before the creator king, to stop running in endless circles and to find rest in God, to find rest in the Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Well, as we finish this morning, this is how one commentator paraphrases the end of Ecclesiastes. He says, listen, we've come to the end of our journey. After seeing that our work, wisdom, and earthbound pleasures will eventually float into the air and disappear like smoke, don't you think it's best we bow the knee to our Creator, to fear Him, to trust Him, to worship Him, and to enjoy Him. You see, this is what it means to be truly human. Let's pray. Our Lord of heaven and earth, help us to stop running and looking for meaning in things of this earth that will one day fade away. Instead, help us to acknowledge you, the creator and the ruler God, the sovereign one over all. Help us to bow the knee to you, to accept your free gift of salvation in Jesus and to fear and obey you, the one true God, our good, gracious and sovereign King. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.